Welcome to the AccuSprout Podcast, where it's my mission to help new practitioners of Chinese medicine navigate from school to career. I'm Stacy. I'm an acupuncturist and herbalist, podcaster, coach, and creator of Magical Networks. Be sure to check out all four pillars of the podcast where I cover case studies to sharpen your clinical skills, mindset Mondays to support your mental health, new practitioner interviews to prove that you are not alone, and all things business from launching your practice to negotiating your pay if you choose to be an employee. This podcast is made possible by our sponsors. So if you would like to support the podcast, be sure to check out the sponsors page on the website to claim your special AccuSprout offers. When I first started my practice, I was actually kind of a disaster when it came to my books. I hired an accountant who actually laundered money from another client. So I went on a quest to find a bookkeeper who really tailors to and loves working with acupuncturists. And I found Sarah at Horizon West Bookkeeping, and I'm feeling pretty fortunate. Sarah offers acupuncturists and the AccuSprout community a couple different packages so that she can meet you where you are. If you're new to practice, she can come in and do what's called a QuickBooks startup package for you, where you get pretty deep discounts on QuickBooks for about four months. She sets up your chart of accounts, assists with linking your bank accounts, makes sure that all the transactions are imported, and then teaches you how to use it with two hours of one-on-one training. It's a killer deal. She also offers cleanup packages and catch-up packages. Not catch-up packages, guys. Catch-up packages. And a monthly package, which is what I use. And I find it quite affordable and so, so, so worth it because, honestly, I never, since the beginning, have been able to keep up with my bookkeeping. You can schedule a free 15-minute consultation with Sarah to make sure that you guys are the right fit for each other. And you can do that at horizonwestbookkeeping.com forward slash AccuSprout or look for the link in the show notes. Today's episode is also sponsored by Jane, an all-in-one practice management software with helpful features to power your acupuncture practice. Jane offers flexible scheduling options that match the way you work. You have the option of offering one-on-one online sessions for initial consults, meeting in person, and scheduling staggered appointments to accommodate treating patients across different treatment rooms. Jane has you covered. Keep the relaxation going with a seamless checkout experience using Jane's PCI-compliant payment solution, Jane Payments. You can collect patient credit cards securely through your intake form or at the time of booking with an online booking payment policy. This can also help reduce no-shows in your practice. It's a win-win. And Jane's unlimited SMS and email reminders can be sent automatically before each appointment as an extra layer of no-show protection. To learn more about how Jane's helpful features can help you power your acupuncture practice, head to jane.app to book a one-on-one demo with a member of their team. Or if you're ready to get started, head on over to accusprout.com forward slash Jane. And remember to use the code accusprout1mo at the time of sign up to get a one-month grace period applied to your new account. The role of your state association is to fill in that missing bucket I haven't described, your professional success and advancement. That is what state associations are for. And so I think especially that bridge year and beyond, the things that start to become real for people are what state associations are for. But they'll go to Facebook, they'll go to their old school, they'll ask their classmates, you're my favorite professor, tell me this thing. And I'm like, oh my goodness, join your state association because this is what they're for. 
Welcome to the Aki Sprout Podcast, where it's my mission to create a supportive community for new practitioners of Chinese medicine, while I give you the information and inspiration to help you grow towards your vision of success in your first couple years of practice. This is Stacey Whitcomb, and I am your host. Hey, Sprouts, welcome back to the show. That voice you heard is my friend Beth Howlett, and I invited Beth onto the show to talk a little bit about the organizations that new practitioners need to belong to and why. So in this episode, we're going to be discussing your state association and the hidden resources and gems that you can actually have access to as a new practitioner with your membership. I mean, did you know that you actually potentially have access to a mentor through a mentorship program? You do. There are also lots of other resources that some state organizations provide to new practitioners, but there's a problem because if you graduate in one state and you move to another state and you don't actually think to join or you're strapped for cash or whatever, then new practitioners tend to fall off the, well, you kind of fall off the face of the earth for a little bit until you get your feet under you. The the truth is these organizations do have resources to help you. And I really want you to learn about that so that you have access and support, as much support as you can possibly have in the first couple of years, because it's tough, you guys. And without support, it's just so much harder. So of course, you know, that's what I'm here for. Totally want to help you out. Totally want to support you. And by doing so, I'm bringing this to your attention. Your state organization and thereby ASA, are really great opportunities for you to get some help. And typically, all you need to do is reach out. State organizations are led by volunteers. So sometimes it's really hard for them to stay on top of sending out a welcome to the state, greeting to new practitioners. So you may get overlooked. But I really encourage you from the very beginning to reach out to your state organization wherever you move make that one of your top priorities because there are ways to access the things that you need and there are even member benefits and discounts on insurance, etc. if you have a state association membership. Also, down the line, you're going to be really important to the new people coming in, right? Just like right now, Getting help from them is beneficial. Later, you're going to be in a different position. Belonging to our state organizations comes just like really, really as a community of practitioners in the United States really just builds us up. And the more of us there are, the more resources we have to make the changes and do the things that we want to do with Chinese medicine in the West. So I really, once again... There's benefits to you. There's benefits to all of us on a whole. This discussion is with Beth Hallett. Beth is uh, one of my professors at the Oregon College of Oriental Medicine. She is a huge resource of all the things. Uh, She teaches ethics and jurisprudence. And I'm going to let her introduce herself because she has a jillion titles and they're all really important and I don't want to miss them. So I'm going to let her tell you about them. Please enjoy the show. You want to stick around to the end because we also tagged on the four mistakes that she sees practitioners make that could actually really cost you. So even if you've been in practice for a long time, please listen in because I see a lot of mistakes and her seeing these mistakes. I mean, seriously, let's just create a really nice landscape for everybody so nobody gets sued. Okay, so listen into the end and enjoy the show. 
Welcome to the show, Beth. Thank you. I'm really excited to be here. So why don't you tell the audience uh, your name and um, a little bit about yourself, especially with regards to the boards that you belong to and the roles that you play with the Oregon College of Oriental Medicine. Yeah. So I'm Beth Howlett, D-A-O-M-L-A-C. I got my master's in acupuncture and oriental medicine in 2008 and completed my DOM finally in 2019. I currently serve as the vice president of communications and academic services at OCOM. I'm also an adjunct faculty member and I teach in the professional development department. I teach ethics and jurisprudence, community outreach practicum, working on an emerging class called collaborative care or comparative health professions and practices. And beyond that, I also serve in some professional roles. I'm Oregon's delegate to the American Society of Acupuncturists, and that is because I've been a board member of the Oregon Association of Acupuncturists since about 2010, recent past president, former membership director, currently at large and loving it. And I also serve as a board chair for the Oregon Collaborative for Integrative Medicine, and I'm on the education working group for the Academic Collaborative for Integrative Health that just merged with the academic, oh my gosh, there's so many acronyms, AIHM, Integrative Health and Med- Academy for Integrative Health and Medicine. So they're merging and I don't know if they're going to merge names. So a lot of, lot of different hats. Yeah, so many different hats. So let's go back through it because I don't know all of these, <laughs> but I'm very curious. So first of all, I know the Oregon board which is awesome. And I belonged to it when I was in school. And I honestly think that it's, well, I don't have a lot of experience with all the other boards, but spectacular job. I still get emails and great information from the Oregon board. And so you're part of that. And then there's the ASA. I'm sure that a lot of people don't know what the ASA is. Can you speak about that for a moment? Yeah. So the ASA is the American Society of Acupuncturists. It's a federation-style national association whose members are actually participating state associations. So Oregon was one of the founding members when they formalized themselves as their own entity. So that would have been around 2015 that we moved from being what used to be called Council of State Associations or even a President's Council. So it was a group of board members from different state associations who met informally for a variety of reasons. The profession did not seem like it was being well represented at the national level. And the decision was made for that sort of advisory council to formalize as an entity. And that became the ASA. And there was a lot of discussion around, is it an individual member is an individual acupuncturist or our state's members. And we ended up going with that federation model for a number of reasons. But one of them, I'm sure for your AccuSprout podcast listeners, is the idea that membership dues can be onerous. With an individual acupuncturist joins their state association, they get participation at the state level and then participation at the national level. And so dues for OAA are a flat fee plus per capita. So Oregon, Oregon, yeah, Oregon Association of Acupuncturists. So we, to be members of ASA, pay a minimum plus a per capita fee. So it depends upon how big our membership is, how much we contribute. An individual acupuncturist becomes a member of their state association, and then those state associations are members of the ASA. So that's how an individual LAC becomes a member of the ASA. Exactly. And for the listeners, because I didn't know this either, and it's a really important um piece of information for you. The ASA actually has some really great resources 
for acupuncturists that I was unaware of when I was new and joined my state association because that information wasn't conveyed through my state organization. So be sure and take a look at the ASA website, which will be, of course, in the notes. Take a look at it and and go peruse and see what they're about and see what we have coming up and check out what resources you can take advantage of because there are resources for new acupuncturists on that website. Yep. And both resources and member benefits. Those mm-hmm. are the two areas where I think you're going to find the most value for your peruse. <laughs> yeah. And and hopefully that also encourages listeners who perhaps don't belong to their state organization to join their state mm-hmm. organization and support progress in our profession. Mm-hmm. Okay. So then we went from ASA, OOA, OAA, Oregon Association, on to another collaborative Oregon Integrative medicine. Awesome. Awesome. That's the the acronym OCIM. So Portland. Tell me, tell me what it stands for again. Oregon Collaborative for Integrative Medicine. And who is, who belongs to that? So that currently is a member organization that's made up of multiple health professional schools here in the Portland area. It started as an outcome from an R25 grant that OHSU received and coordinated among multiple health university campuses in the Portland area. OCOM was a recipient of a portion of that grant. And through the early 2000s, it brought together OHSU, University of Western States, NUNM, OCOM, Pacific University um, School of Counseling, all together around research education enhancement. And as the grant wound down, the group decided that it was important to keep that momentum and that partnership. And so that's how Awesome was formed. And they have a president. It's based on member dues and the members are, again, those educational institutions, OCOM, NUNM, UWS, just run on, I believe, UP School of Nursing into the collaborative. And that group currently has some funding to explore an initiative called Whole Health in the States. So that's emerging more on that, but really taking what's happening in Oregon in terms of policy and how it meets health education and trying to work with other states to develop parallel models. Because as you saw, like the Oregon Association is rocking it, but in many ways, Oregon is at the vanguard of conversations around non-pharmacological interventions for pain, not just at the like, we buy in level, but at the policy level. So that includes Medicaid reimbursement, pain advisory boards that are engaged with those questions, medical centers conducting research. So Oregon's somewhat of a model. So trying to take that through a whole health in states and work with really important partners like the VA and their own whole health initiatives to use Oregon as, as a, either a hub or as a, a baseline for other groups that may need to do that work at their state level, which is going to be different. State level work is always different <laughs> state by state. But creating a model is is so sharing our model, mm-hmm. sharing sharing a model. Okay, so we just tapped on something that I think would be really cool to point out. When I was in school, this came up that you were part of getting Medicaid to reimburse acupuncture in the state of Oregon for pain codes. Is this correct? Oh, that is such a gross oversimplification and way too many accolades for me personally. No, I would say my predecessor, Laura Ocker, deserves all the credit for that and continues to be a, a strong advocate where it's possible. So this is what I mean. States are different. So pardon, I'm going to try not to use acronyms while we go down this rabbit hole. <laughs> so Medicaid dollars in the U.S. are allocated differently state by state. In Oregon, we have a waiver system where essentially the state of Oregon says, we'll take your Medicaid, 
we're going to have our own state level process for determining what we do with those Medicaid dollars as a lump. So we're not following a federal guideline. We're deciding internally in Oregon, where is morbidity and mortality? What is evidence-based practice? How are we going to allocate Medicaid according to our own evidence-based criteria? And Laura and some other folks who are dual licensed LACs have gotten to sit on that committee um, called the Health Evidence Review Commission. So I was on the board, but I was not as active at the time. But basically, OCOM staff, in partnership with Laura and the State Association, in partnership with the HERC, presented evidence to the state to say you should cover acupuncture for XYZ with your Medicaid dollars. And we were able to enhance the amount of things that were covered through that process. There are some things they wanted to cover, but it falls what we call below the line which means there isn't enough morbidity and mortality associated for them to fund it. They acknowledge there's evidence. They're just not going to pay for it. And then there's some things that were like right on the cusp and they're like, come back when you have better evidence that includes acupuncture for anxiety, acupuncture for fibromyalgia. So there's still that process in place. There's still an acupuncturist on the Herc. That is how that particular sausage gets made in Oregon. Not every state does that the same way. And the OCOM clinic collects data. That is true, but that has nothing to do with that other thing. But creating research or... Yeah. That, that's where I, I was going with that. The Oregon College of Oriental Medicine actually has a really great program. They collect data and patient outcomes with regards to different conditions. And so that yeah. is just another way that the schools can contribute to research and getting things like this moving forward. Yeah, it's a, it's complicated by whether or not you have an institutional review board at your in, at your school, which OCOM does. So that means that like even minute changes to our intake paperwork technically have to be IRB approved because we're using it for research. We also face challenges with students doing the first and the fifth visit follow up. That has been the perennial challenge. But you know, we know a lot even from baseline characteristics in, in terms of who's coming and. That was really important when we were doing paper-based charting. We've just switched to EHR. So we're, we're tracking on what that is going to do in terms of pulling that information in a different way and being able to track outcomes because now all patients are charted through an EHR. But yeah, you know, there's a lot of things we can do with that that has been... The outcomes data is, you know, tabulated in a giant spreadsheet, but there are other things in charts that you still have to do kind of manual searching. And we've had students present posters where they did a combination of outcomes data plus looking through chart notes to present on everything from what are the standard acupuncture points that student clinics are using to treat shoulder pain. Right. You know, yeah, that's great. If you can actually quantify that versus, I don't know, LI-15, that's what so-and-so <laughs> said, you know, and it would be great to look at those things. And so, yeah, systematically gathering data is great for schools, but for individuals, the version of that is individual acupuncturists keeping rockstar chart notes because you can write up practice-based research, but only if you can go back to your charts and say you clearly measured outcomes. So you need all the outcome tools. Yeah, and consistent charting, especially at intake and asking for things like their medical records. So if you want to exclude other diagnoses, you have proof, not just, well, the patient said they didn't have that. That's just bulletproof charting. That's actually just keeping complete chart notes. Yes. I love it. Okay. Today's today's podcast specifically had to do with a question that I had about fostering growth in our state organizations and how do we help new practitioners along the way going from school, because I was involved when I was in school, and then I got 
sidetracked for a year after graduation and didn't join my state organization for an entire year after I was already licensed in that state. I was also really focused on me, you know, and and trying to feed myself and create a business and do the things that I didn't know how to do and weren't coming my way, so to speak. So it, it fell off my radar. My concern now that I'm really starting to pay attention and gain interest in our practice as a whole, even though I may not be invested in some of the well, we'll just talk about like insurance. I'm not billing insurance right now, but I, but I, I'm concerned about this now. I want acupuncturists to have the ability, if that's what they want to do, to do that. But what we're, I feel like we're lacking is I'm not the only one that fell off the fell off the page. You know, I'm not the only one coming out of schools that fell off the page. So I contacted Beth to talk about this. So can you t- talk a little bit about state organizations and how how do we retain? our memberships and also foster this new practitioner growth. Yeah. So I think that a lot of it starts with what you said, just having some awareness when you're a student, right? That this is a part of all the things that you're learning, that you're learning this part of your professional landscape. That's not just about needles and moxa and the things that you take for granted are going to be your daily work, that your daily work as an acupuncturist is in some ways circumscribed by regulations that affect what you do. Even if you don't take insurance, it doesn't mean that your clinic medicinary isn't regulated by the FDA. It doesn't mean that that build out you finally can afford to do on your clinic isn't going to be regulated by a local county authority in terms of what your zoning and building codes are. All of that kind of local regulation is really the wheelhouse of your state association. So it starts with an awareness in school, but the rubber doesn't really hit the road until you're a practitioner. You may take for granted as a student, well, they just take care of my malpractice insurance. I don't know. The lights are on. I don't know how that works. <laughs> but once you're on your own, it becomes like, especially for a new practitioner, like really important decisions about what you can afford, who you talk to. And so state associations can serve as clearing houses for that, either they're a great first resource for you because they've answered those questions and might even have a guide for you. Like, here's how you become an acupuncturist in your state. If they're doing their work, they should be offering annual low or no cost trainings and all the compliance stuff you should be tracking on. Why not be a member? You get your ethics credits. You're potentially going to get your annual HIPAA training. Like all that stuff should be coming through an active state association. And even first year practitioners should not let those things lapse. Oregon have always done like at our annual conference, a sharps drop off. So we, you know, you know, you've been letting that thing fill up. We'll just take care of having this carted away for you. And I am sometimes a little alarmed at how much walks in. I'm like, you have two suitcases. How long have you been holding on to those sharps containers? You know, but that's OSHA, right? So there are a whole bunch of things that regulate our profession and choosing to not take insurance does not absolve you of operating as a medical provider that's regulated. And this is where your state associations are your advocate. The schools are not your advocate. They advocate for your education. Mm-hmm. And CCOM is not necessarily your advocate, although they sit a bit in that world. Really, they're just assuring professional standards of practice. Are you competent? They're assuring that to other people, medical boards, patients. But the stuff that really matters to most acupuncturists in terms of can I operate a business? It's your state associations that are your advocate that gets the acupuncturist. And so that's why I think it's really useful to both become aware when you're in school that it's just part of your future landscape and then engage early Mm -hmm. and not necessarily be driven by what is usually a flare up. Like you don't even think about it until something gets real. So this is a very common scenario. 
female panicked acupuncturist has a very just concrete problem. Something is not going right. And maybe you're my resource. And the first question we ask ourselves is, is this person a member? Because we are a volunteer organization run on a shoestring. And if we're going to contact our lobbyists or someone that we have to pay, our first question is, are you a member? Because we may not have the capacity to support you. But since we're a member organization, if you are, the answer is always yes. So usually the response is then, well, we have these member services. We'd love it if you join in order to access the resources that you seem like you need. And if I could sidebar on a, a pertinent story about this that I, I love. So it was actually a former supervisor of my at Ocom. Many years later, I'm on the board and we get one of those panic emails. And this individual was had like a little Portland craftsman house and had a carriage house out back and they wanted to retrofit their carriage house into a small clinic in their backyard. It's easy peasy, right? They go to the city of Portland to get the permits to do the build out. And the inspector comes back and says, you can't finish this until you put in this really expensive backflow sink and toilet system to deal with all the blood. And she's like, excuse me, all of the blood. And they go back and forth. And I don't know where he got his information, but he was holding on her permit and would not let her build out until she installed this really expensive, very specialty plumbing to deal with medical waste. And so she came to us and was like, this can't be happening. This is not true. And But they they could stop her from building. And she said, can you help me? And we said, are you a member? And no, will you join? She did. And so then we got our lobbyist on it and our, our team. We started contacting the city. And what your state association can do is say, we represent professional standards. Your typical acupuncturist does this. And folks listen to us because it's not crazy Beth out there with her weird ideas. It's, I am the president of a state association that represents a professional standard. Here are standards of practice. And all of a sudden her permit went through. We explained to them, there's not all this blood. We use sharps containers. The amount of blood involved in a normal interaction is on a cotton ball, goes in the sharps, like no, no, no blood, no big blood. We use sharps. <laughs> and they were okay with it. And her permit went through. So forevermore, an acupuncturist can build out and not have this barrier of this really expensive plumbing system, but most acupuncturists don't know that we did that for them. And so that's always the challenge. If we're reducing barriers to your effective practice, we may seem invisible to you. <laughs> it's true. I mean, anybody who paves the way for somebody else, you don't know that that's actually a freedom that you have because somebody else actually hucked themselves into the middle of something. Mm -hmm. So what do you think the bridge is to keeping the students involved in the state organizations as they go from school to a new state? Because I feel like, man, if we can just continue to retain fresh involvement of like a growing acupuncturist, then they're going to belong forever. Because once you're committed to something, then yeah, big deal. The dues come out every year. It's part of your your jam, you know, and you may be inclined to be involved, especially if you've been helped. So I feel like maybe part of the problem because I was part of the problem. What could have been what what could happen so that that doesn't happen? Uh, so you know, one thing is state associations can make sure that they're reaching out to recent grads if they're not in their city or their state, if they're in proximity, to say congratulations, graduate, join, and also doing things on campus so there is that relationship during the bridge period, and particularly targeting that moment when you're like stepping over onto the other side to meet them at that moment and say, we're here for you. We see you. Congratulations. We're here, I think is important. And 
you know, most of the associations folks get around to volunteering and mentorship maybe a little later in their career. So sometimes you forget that moment of that first year or two. So I think we can all do a better job. And I, in my inner relationships with other ASA association participants, you know, how do we create like really meaningful packets on like getting your business started? And it's hard because some of it's really state specific, county specific, right? And some of it's not. So I think there's a balance to be struck between states probably doing something that's really tailored to the specificities of your state with maybe an umbrella that's kind of like, here's something every acupuncture should know when they get started. I've had the opportunity to work on some of those things through OCOM and specific partnerships to create a bridge program of our own, more focused on granular prescribing. But, you know, setting up a medicinary is a huge deal. And it can be very expensive. So if you don't do it thoughtfully with a plan, you can lose a lot of money on overhead. You can invest in things that expire. So being really thoughtful about space, what you're actually prescribing, because school clinics by design do not look like your private clinic. You know, in school, we're training you on everything. Once you run your clinic, you specialize a little bit more. So do you need to buy every single one of the 365 herbs or do you need to buy the 10 base formulas that you prescribe most often? Yes. Right. Those are different considerations that you should really think about. Yes. It, the, one of the challenges is that you don't know what you don't know. This is always one of my favorite sayings. Like you don't know what you don't know. Somebody mm-hmm. who's five years ahead of you knows. Somebody who's 10 years, well, they may, you hope. Somebody's 10 years, they they probably do. You know, somebody on a board probably does. But I feel like new acupuncturists also don't really reach out. They're just so overwhelmed and like, I don't know what to do. But you and I had a discussion because one of the members on my board at AccuSprout had come up with this really great suggestion of having state organizations create a mentorship, a group of, of senior practitioners who want to volunteer as a mentor, reach out and create a bridge to bring new practitioners in, and perhaps even sponsoring a new practitioner for the first two years of their membership. That exists. Yet another wonderful thing I don't get to take credit for. So the ASA actually has a fantastic chair of a mentorship program. Her name is Christine Cronin. So another thing to check out when you go to the website under their committee listings, they consider their membership program a committee and there's a direct contact email and description and they're actively trying to do those sorts of matches for exactly the need you described. There's also an ASA student chapter. So beyond schools being involved and welcoming state associations to build consciousness, any individual student can also start to participate through the ASA student organization or the mentorship program. As students. That is super cool. I didn't know that all those things existed. So yay. So now hopefully people listening to the podcast will now have this also as a resource. And uh, of course, once again, I'll put those in the show notes. Tell me a little bit about the challenges that the state boards face with membership in general. I mean, we're we're volunteer boards who are made up by necessity of, of busy acupuncturists who feel very overwhelmed by governance and added just time. And so that's always a challenge. There can be burnout in folks who fill those roles and a fair amount of turnover or serial joiners like myself that maybe wanted to leave, but we don't feel like we can because there's <laughs> not enough people to replace us because <laughs> this work is vital. So there's that, you know, there's, it can be challenging to commit yourself to that level of volunteering, some self-doubt and then fatigue on the membership side. It's that value proposition. Like, why would I do this? My dollar is precious. And so hopefully there's a little more understanding that it's like preventative medicine. 
if you join and participate, it's always there for you as a resource when a problem comes up or you're getting the newsletter, or you're tracking on things that are happening. So you're just engaged. doesn't mean you have to volunteer, but your membership participation can really help with your own engagement with some of these things. Better than Facebook, in my opinion, in terms of like what's really going on from a fact-based perspective. <laughs> well, it's much safer. We have a closed Facebook page for our state organization and a new practitioner was asking questions in there. And I was happy about that. <laughs> mm-hmm. You know, maybe we could talk about the things that a state organization can help with or provide more so in depth. Can and do. You know, at this point, most state organizations are doing a version of what Oregon is doing, which is they host an annual meeting. Most of their bylaws require them to do so. And usually because that has to be a vote for things like the governing slate for the organization, report out on the activities of that nonprofit for the year, meet your lobbyist, those kinds of things are pretty typical across states. And usually their CEUs attached to it. So that's the, the value for dollar. They maintain their nonprofit status by doing all those things they have to do in terms of transparency and operating. Members can gather to vote and to see each other. Usually it's a pretty joyous occasion when you can meet in person. And that value add is the CEUs. So your membership dollars then translate into CEUs, hopefully of an equivalent value. Other associations and OAA do ongoing training. So different models, some go big on like Jeffrey UN. And so they make a bank by doing a Jeffrey UN seminar for a weekend. OAA has tended to leverage our local talent. You know, we do have three schools in the area. So oftentimes we'll just basically do a member trade. You get the equivalent of your membership. We're not going to pay you a speaker fee. They're equivalent. You do a two-hour talk for us and we get CEUs for it. So any member could basically accrue all the CEUs they need for NCCOM or the state by being a member and just attending our events for a year. And that's really what, you know, at the minimum what we've tried to do. So it feels really clear. Like I pay this much, I get this much. Which is why OAA is so rich to me. Like I miss. Oh, we are not rich. No, I mean rich. Like it's worth it to me. Like it's valuable. I mean, Mm -hmm. like so valuable to the members. And that is why I really loved the OAA. The talent of the educators that are brought to present, that is high end, as far as I'm concerned, Mm -hmm. really great educators present with Mm -hmm. incredibly interesting topics, Mm -hmm. you know, and it's always, you know, not every state's in that position of having two schools to tap into. And then everybody who's stayed in near proximity, like we have Mm -hmm. a lot of local resources. So never that embarrassment of riches, we haven't had to reach as far, (laughs) but it's not true for every state. And so there's certainly different ways to do it. But again, I know it's unattractive, but I can't say it enough. For our conference, we always try and do breakouts and we have a track that's really a compliance track. Like it was free to bring, but I brought one time someone from the Office of Disability Access Services for the state of Oregon to come do an hour just for acupuncturists because they do it for healthcare all the time. Mm -hmm. Workers' compensation, various topics in culturally competent care, like all of those kinds of things. If you can find local resources, some of them are, are... they do it for other healthcare providers and acupuncturists don't always think to ask. So we've been able to leverage that and bring in all different kinds of stuff, including trying to offer a compliance track. So if nothing else, you know, bulletproof billing and coding and annual HIPAA training, the two ethics credits you're going to need, herbal compounding safety, like trying to do those things on a rotating basis. So every few years that stuff showing up so you can, you know, be in compliance. 
<laughs> yeah, no, and it's really nice. I think that as practitioners often go look for the sexy topics. And <laughs> while those are not always the sexy topics, they're really important. And it's nice that somebody's just kind of dishing them up for you, mm-hmm. honestly. Yeah. So you teach ethics and jurisprudence. Can you give me your top five topics that you see happening that acupuncturists kind of, it just goes right over their head that makes you cringe that you feel like they need to know? My number one misrepresentation of licensure and certifications. Oh my goodness. So your NCCM diploma, your degree from your school and your license all need to be reflected accurately as given to you on your diploma, on your certificate, you you cannot futz with it. I can't tell you how many OCOM graduates now have an MSOM. That was not on your diploma. You cannot put that on your business cards. That's not your degree. Similarly, DOM is the licensing title in New Mexico. People with dual licensure will often use that to call themselves doctor. No, that is a licensing title. It is not a degree. It does not confer the ability to call yourself doctor in any other place in New Mexico. I'm terrified sometimes when I see things like folks who are practicing in unlicensed states where there is no practice act calling themselves doctor because they're using their New Mexico license. So they they can only call themselves that in Mexico? You lost me for a second. So so again, this is why people make mistakes because, you know, you get this alphabet soup behind your name and it's exciting and you want to put yourself out there, but you have to be really careful to use them correctly. And in Oregon, we're regulated by the medical board that licenses doctors. So they're really legalistic about it. And I've seen people end up even with suspended licenses for misrepresentation. Now, it's not going to go that far unless the misrepresentation has gone way down the track. But plenty of people do the first layer. So in Oregon, for example, I have a D-A-O-M-L-A-C. I cannot use the word doctor unless I also include my D-A-O-M. I can receive a warning letter from the medical board for misrepresenting who I am. And I certainly can't use any other title than D-A-O-M. And, you know, we've had with the whole conversation around the word Oriental, there's a lot of talk about, you know, just change the degree, remove the word O. That is a huge process that's also regulated by the state. If I was just to throw another degree title behind my name or start putting parentheses on it, that's actually kind of a form of fraud. I am misrepresenting my degree. So folks need to, I don't care how you feel about it, accurately on your business cards, on your website, use the degree designation that you were given by the school you graduated from as it was written and use your licensing titles as you have been given as they are written. And to be very clear that especially something like doctor is conferred by your diploma and by degree that you have and your licensing title is different with a couple of weird exceptions. And one of them is New Mexico and the other one's Rhode Island. And they just made it, I think, deliberately confusing because their licensing titles in Rhode Island is D-A-O-M, just to make it real confusing. So if I went to Rhode Island and got licensed, I'd be a D-A-O-M comma D-A-O-M. So on this topic, which is kind of interesting, just for clarification. And that was just one of my five, but it's the biggest one. That's why you're here. So I just saw somebody on social media who has a D-A-C-M, instead of putting D-A-C-M on their bio and this is social media, but this is what you're talking about, right? Like Mm -hmm. they put doctor 
like the, the, like what they do, you know, it's so brief mm-hmm. on social media. They put D O C T O R two other things, but none of them, nothing said Chinese medicine. And if they were in Oregon and they were to be investigated or a patient complained about them, that kind of thing could bite them later. Is it going to bite them now? No. Is there a state licensing board running an algorithm on all of our websites? No. The FTC is, that would be on my list of five, but, um, <laughs> not your licensing boards, all of that stuff. And when I teach ethics and jurisprudence, this is my point. All of that stuff becomes a cascade of liability once you're opened up to an investigation. So your best protection is to have done all of that in advance. So if someone starts looking at you, there's no problems, you know? No, and you never know who's going to throw a shoe at you. You could do absolutely nothing and have crazy show up at your door. And, and there you go. You didn't have your house lined up and now it's all in cascade. Good point. Okay. Number two. Number two is what we talked about a lot before is just not thinking that regulations apply to me, right? I'm an acupuncturist. I'm under the radar. I am running, you know, this, I have these beliefs and so I can run my business and it doesn't matter about the OSHA, about the HIPAA, about all that kind of stuff. I learned about that in school. I'm done. I I really try to emphasize to not take that attitude for what we just said about, you never know when someone's going to throw a shoe at you. And Mm -hmm. if you haven't been prepared, they can tell if you made it up after the fact. It's best to do that kind of stuff beforehand. (laughs) Well, it's true. And it's something that's happening right now with the ADA website, non-compliance stuff, right? I just had a chat with an attorney about the whole thing. And she was even saying they can tell if you are summonsed for this problem and then you change it all of a sudden, they know. They've already Mm -hmm. seen it. They know. And there's all sorts of tech stuff that they can do too. So my number three is just being really clear. And it used to be on the NCSOM website and I don't think they have it anymore. I'm glad I took a screen snip of how the players interact with each other. So I often see like students complaining to their school about not protecting their scope, complaining to the NCCOM about their education. And it's just because I think there's this general misunderstanding of what each of those things does. And actually the sign of a healthy profession is that you have that sort of separation of powers with really clear missions of what they do and don't do. And I think the biggest misunderstanding in that whole matrix of participating organizations that create our profession is that medical boards are not designed to protect us. They are there to protect patients. So they issue you a license to tell the patients in your state that you are safe. It is not something that you have paid into and then they're going to back you up. And that is their mission. Their mission is to protect patients. NCCOM, you know, now now they have the Academy of Diplomats. They've branched out more into advocacy, but their core mission was really about certification and professional standards, using the best practices to assure that when you graduate, there is an exam that verifies that competency that you can then present to the medical board to say, I am safe. That's their mission. Schools are schools. Their job is to educate. And yeah, educating on the profession and business is a part of it. But once you graduate, not that their mission's fulfilled, but that isn't their role. To tie it all together, the role of your state association is to fill in that missing bucket I haven't described. Your professional success and advancement. That is what state associations are for. They are separate for a reason because their mission is different and it can't really get into those other domains without ethical issues. They fill a very important space. And so I think especially that bridge year and beyond, the things that start to become real for people are what state associations are for. 
but they'll go to Facebook, they'll go to their old school, they'll ask their classmates, you're my favorite professor, tell me this thing. And I'm like, oh my goodness, just join your state association because this is what they're for. I have seen this, you know, like the schools aren't interested in helping us progress the profession and create more jobs. The, you know, all of this slinging of why are we struggling as a profession (laughs) type of attitude. And I think a lot of times, like you just said, people don't really know where to go. And I think that it's very important to understand that if you support your state association, then you have money for a lobbyist and then you can be represented in legislation to to change things so that we can have more opportunities. And it starts with the state association. So, Mm -hmm. okay, Mm -hmm. number three. Three. And I think it's hard to say where this is a problem, but I've done different versions in ethics over time, which is talking about herbal compounding and prescribing. I've had the opportunity to hear a number of lectures from malpractice providers about the biggest risk areas in our practice and actually where we can do the most harm and where acupuncturists have actually killed people is through things like prescribing spoiled herbs that have gone moldy. Burns are actually, moxa is one of the biggest areas where there is a malpractice claim brought against someone. So I don't think most acupuncturists really think about those parts of practice and how potentially dangerous they are. And the new fun layer that was added with COVID was the FTC literally trolling websites for false claims about COVID and sending warning letters to acupuncturists. So, you know, I think that And if we had more time, a whole other separate topic about how herbs have become regulated in the United States, the whole tie to the exclusion acts and ultimately our regulation as food, I think is a direct outcome of earlier racist policies that we've now inherited. Whole other topic for another day. But it essentially means that that is one of the most regulated risk involved spaces where we practice. And just being really clear and careful, like I just mentioned earlier, like don't don't buy a bunch of herbs that you're going to end up throwing away and waste your money. Make sure that you're building a medicinary that you can maintain under basic FDA guidance for safe compounding or farm it out. Here are your options, but like, don't get sloppy and messy on that stuff. It's really important for you and your patients to be good at that and be really careful how you advertise your services on your website. Cause we walk a really weird line where essentially we cannot claim that herbs have any meaningful health outcomes. Like I can't say that, you know, Xiaowei Jiao helps to alleviate hot flashes related to menopause. I'm now talking about this formula does this thing. I can only describe symptoms and even that's a sticky wicket. We can, we can have those conversations in a one-to-one interaction. So you, it's, it's, a, it's a terrible line and the students always push back, but they're like, but I know this works. And I'm like, I know, just be real careful what you put out there. We'll have you back to talk more about that topic, particularly because that's a really great topic. Maybe there is no number five. I feel like those are my top four. Before we started rolling, you gave me a little tip, which was fascinating. It is a fun fact. It is a fun fact. What are the two questions that you can ask about a service animal? So pop quiz, what are they, Stacey? Oh, gosh, put me on the spot. <laughs> you can ask what the what the dog does. In other words, what the dog is trained to do in support of the person. And you can ask, oh, I hate being put on the spot, what training that dog has as far as being a, what do you call it? What you else? can also ask, is this a service animal trained to assist you with a disability? And then your question, what task has this animal been trained to perform? 
And if they pee in your office, you can kick them out. You can kick them out because they are supposed to be well trained. And if they're being disruptive, you can ask a genuine service animal to leave. But ideally, if they've gone through that process, that's not happening because they've been trained to help someone with a task. And so they're on point. They're helping that person. Yes. What are the two? What are the two? A small horse. Yes. And? <laughs> and a dog. Yeah, that's it. So if someone brings a cat with a service animal vest and some laminated paperwork that says, this is my service cat, is that a service animal? No, that's a pet. <laughs> that is an emotional comfort dog. And again, towards policies and procedures, if you want to support your patients in their wellness and have emotional support animals in your clinic, please do it. Just have a policy because now you also need to think about your other patients who are allergic to cats. How are you going to manage that? Do what you want, but just think about it. And it- <laughs> well, and like you just said, have it in your policies and procedures manual. Yeah, for sure. One last thing that I want to talk about that you have a ton of wealth about was telehealth because you were part of bringing that into OCOM when COVID hit and making that work. So, or am I wrong? Am I right? I had a small part. It, it took many, many hands. There, and then you had to do it fast too. So I'm sure it was it was a, a headache. Can you talk a little bit about though? Because we talked about the future implications of now having telehealth be a part of our practice. Yeah. So I would say that COVID really clarified the fact that there could and should be telehealth regulations for acupuncturists. Just prior to COVID, I'd had some folks ask me about it, and I didn't really feel like I had clear guidance from the medical board or the state on what I could say. There are codes that acupuncturists could bill. I learned that from Maury West, but I just think folks weren't using them. And to bill them, you have to basically demonstrate that whatever you're doing by telehealth is equivalent to whatever you do in the office. And I think pre-COVID, no acupuncturist thought it could be equivalent, right? Like, I mean, I need to see you. I need to put pins in you. Like that, this, there's no telehealth version of this. So what we learned is one, through the OCOM experience, you know, making sure you have HIPAA compliant communications, Again, if you already have that set up in advance, you can pivot to telehealth, no problem. Otherwise, you need to make sure that your teleconferencing software is HIPAA compliant. If you're having multiple visitors come through a room, like you have a waiting room just so that folks aren't running into each other, you're not recording, all that stuff. But more to the point, you know, how do you create an engaged clinical interaction when someone is not present? And I think long term, there's great opportunities for follow up particularly on herbal care. Like I can zoom with you. You can show me your tongue. You can describe your symptoms. I can mail them to you. I don't need to see you in the office. And does that reduce barriers? Does that mean you can see a patient more frequently for an herbal follow-up? I think there's a lot of potential there now that it's clarified. States regulate it differently. So in Oregon, there's actually, I don't know if it's a House or Senate bill to help extend telehealth across state lines. Should apply to acupuncturists. But for right now, even though it's telehealth, we can only treat people in our state. So their primary residence has to be in Oregon. And states regulate that differently. And I think the big thing that you were interested in that was like, wow, you could do that was we made telehealth kits. So we made small kits that could be mailed to someone. And then when we did the Zoom consultation, you could show that patient how to use the smokeless moxa stick at home, how to apply ear seeds to pressure points, even on the body or on the ear, how to do gua sha at home with a little oil and the tool that we sent. And a lot of students also reported being able to spend more time on lifestyle advice, showing exercises, talking through diet. You know, if you're not busy putting in pins and taking them out, what do you do with that hour? Well, you focus on the other parts of the medicine that are really meaningful. Maybe you didn't have time for it before. So even, you know, between putting the pins in for follow-up care, I think there's huge opportunities. We do a lot of lifestyle work with people. 
And there are a lot of things that we send home with patients that now, because folks are used to Zoom, you can check in on them. You can see where they're snubbing out that, you know, smokeless moxa stick and be like, oh, no, <laughs> have more ability to actually manage their risk in anything you send home with them using telehealth. It's true. So that's kind of exciting. You can do Qigong. You can teach them a Qigong form and practice with them and answer their questions. Like amazing stuff that normally you might send home and wonder if they ever did it. Well, now you can be right there for a follow-up. No, I love this. You guys, I got totally excited about it because you can completely sell a package. I mean, I hate to say that because you don't have to sell a package. (laughs) That just makes some people cringe. But you can sell like and share these amazing pieces that we didn't have time to do before, or we just did quickly for them. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's going to create a more invested patient. You're more likely to have retention, I think, with some of this stuff mm-hmm. because you're teaching them and bringing them along and getting them invested and excited because they're able to do some stuff themselves. I love it. Thanks so much, Beth, for being on the show. Is there anything else that you want to share with the audience? Feel free. Any topic whatsoever. Thanks. So a little shameless self-promotion, two things. One, I have the great pleasure to work with Dr. Eric Brand, PhD, LAC, of Legendary Herbs. And we're doing a talk hosted by Geological and the OAA on February 4th in honor of Chinese New Year on the Kamwa Chung Museum. So if you're interested in Chinese medicine, herbal history at all, please tune in because it is not only a world heritage site, it is a one of a kind repository of the records of a frontier herbalist. It's pretty amazing. Everyone should know about it. The second is I am currently the principal investigator on a nationwide herb cultivation study, and I need more acupuncturists to participate. So please take the survey and let me and our research team know how interested you are and what characteristics of U.S. grown herbs are important to you. Mm. Or if that's even something that you want, because OCOM is partnering with OSU on some small opportunities with their agricultural program to figure out how to actually sustainably grow Chinese herbs in Oregon. And that means financially sustainable, environmentally sustainable, all the meanings of sustainable, which also includes your input acupuncturists. Will you buy them? What matters to you in terms of? Let's dive into that a little bit, because I think that that's a really exciting topic. Can you talk about if somebody wants to volunteer, how they might help you guys? Or is that available no, yet? But I, and it's so funny because I put this out there and again, Facebook, I got so much stuff that is, I could tell there's energy, oh, but yeah. I think it overestimates what the outcome of a survey is. So the survey, because it's IRB approved, which means I can publish the results. That's part of why it took a long time to get here. This actually started as a student project. If Miles Sled was your supervisor, this is that project finally finally, (laughs) finally, IRB approved and nationally launched with a a significant partner that I think makes it more meaningful. But I wouldn't encourage anyone to go out and just get involved and volunteer. The one thing that from talking to Jean Jablet more personally, and I know that some of my other researchers have talked to Peg Schaefer, there have been a number of startups, including even state level funded startups that failed. And it was partially because the economic model was not sustainable. And so I don't want folks just to rush out there and do things Mm -hmm. because what we've proven is all the ways that this can fail. Okay. And I think that to do this, we as acupuncturists need to lean into the people who know what they're doing. And that is to work with somebody like Oregon State that has a really great, well-known agriculture program, because really this is an agricultural problem. But I'm so grateful that they want to partner with us because they're not subject matter experts. So what my survey is, is the ability to take to them as they can figure what is a sustainable business model for this, 
what matters to us. So it's not being driven by industry. It's being driven by herbalists who say, these are the things that matter to me. And that's huge. You know, that's a lot of respect for us. Yeah. It's the ability to maybe plan for things with the best practices of all of the folks who grow things that we eat and consume to, to bring it to bear for our little industry. Because especially for Chinese herbs, there's a lot of considerations that look a bit like the wine industry, right? Like Daudi, you have to grow it in the right place. You have to have the right features. Like there's some talk, for example, Donggui. Is it a specific fungus that grows on the root itself that interacts with it? You know, determining all of those features of what makes an herb medicinal and mm-hmm. of quality is so complex. Mm-hmm. So it's also then where do we put our energy? So again, if acupuncturists let us know, here are the 36 herbs I'm prescribing all the time. Mm-hmm. That helps them focus on not what's easiest to grow in Oregon, but if we're going to grow something in Oregon, what can we sell the most in Oregon? That'll be in the show notes, you guys, so you can participate that way. And I highly encourage that because it's very exciting to have the herbs be here in the U.S. It, it ensures that they're going to be available to us. And if the model's created and is a working model, it may mean that we're actually going to be able to have it at a better price, perhaps, maybe, maybe not. We'll see how it comes along and how much it, it costs to produce, et cetera. But very exciting project. Thanks for doing that. I appreciate it. Yeah. Thanks so much for being on the show. You guys, you're going to hear Beth again because she's definitely a wealth of information that I will be tapping back into in the future. Thanks for being on the show. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. Hey, everyone. Thanks so much for tuning in and listening to the show to the very, very end. I just want to remind you to take a look at your show notes for the link to do that survey about growing herbs in the United States. And if you're not a member of your state organization, hop on that today too. All right. Take care. That's it. That's the end of the show. Thanks for tuning in. I really appreciate you guys. And if you appreciate this podcast, it would be amazing if you could head on over to Apple Podcasts and leave a great review. And if you don't like what I'm doing, then that's okay. No worries. Just skip it.